Thank you to everybody who made themselves available this evening. And thank you to Alana for making yourself available for this talk. Um, for those of you guys who are here with us for the first time, um, my name is Kyle Fincham. Um, I was living in Brooklyn. I had a gym called Movement Brooklyn in the city. Um, unfortunately, due to the circumstances in the world, we were forced to uh, close our space down, um, but we've been teaching classes out of uh, my uh, in-laws garage. And uh, I realized while I was teaching out of the garage that I really wanted to um, connect and chat with other people who are practicing movement around the world, um, steal information from them, get to know them a little bit. Um, we've had the opportunity to talk with uh, some really interesting people, acrobats, martial artists, uh, dancers, and um, I'm really excited to, to have these conversations and I'm really excited to have this conversation tonight. Um, so what we'll do is I'll uh, interview Alana a little bit. We'll chat, we'll get to know each other. We've actually never had a conversation, so it'll be really interesting. Um, and then if anyone has questions, you can type them into the chat box, they'll come to me. Um, if you have a question and you feel like you're happy to uh, jump on and you'd rather talk rather than type, there is an option over on the chat box where you can raise your hand. And if you do that, then uh, I'll let you jump on and, and, and ask your question. Um, no pressure either way, um, but we'll do the little questions or we'll do the questions closer to the end. Um, so yeah, that's how that'll work. So we're speaking with Alana Craveld tonight. And like I said, we've never met before, but um, a mutual friend had these amazing things to say about Alana when I was asking about some people or asking around some people that um, they thought I should have on to talk. And then I realized that Alana and I actually were at a fighting monkey workshop together in Toronto about, I think three years ago. Um, wow. and, we and we might've met, um, <laughs> but neither of us remember it. Um, it's okay. Um, but as I, you know, was told about Alana, I was told about this, you know, amazing character, great conversation. And as I read about her background, 15 years in contemporary dance, teaching movement, teaching dance, working with not just one type of person kind of going through the gauntlet of, of teaching everything from regular people to dancers to, um, actors and athletes, I was like, well, you know, this is a really unique person for, for the work that we're doing here. So thank you so much for making your time uh, available to us. Um, but I feel like since the connection we really do have here is that we were both at a workshop that we don't remember each other from. And I'm a huge fan of the work that um, they do in Fighting Monkey. As a contemporary dancer, can you talk about how you kind of took a leap or maybe added it into your repertoire, this, uh, this work with Fighting Monkey coming from the contemporary dance world. Okay, well, thank you so much to you and Alexa for the invitation to be here. It's really a pleasure. Um, perhaps you can imagine that as someone who's working in dance, I'm not often called upon to speak. <laughs> So it's always nice to find myself in this role or yeah, to 
have a moment to be uh, verbally communicating uh, something of my experience and sharing it in this way. So this is very nice, very pleasurable and nice. Thank you. Uh, with Fighting Monkey, what is there to say about Fighting Monkey? I really uh, encountered it really by chance, uh, which is the case for a lot of great things. <laughs> and um, I did a workshop here in Montreal, which is where I'm based, where I live. And uh, I don't know, there was just something so immediately compelling about this approach to movement practice. Uh, I think I was just telling the story the other day, in my first workshop with Yosef and Linda, um, the first task we were asked to partner up and to sit on the ground with our partner and to just try to pin one another to the ground, <laughs> which is, you know, I guess, thinking of the bulk of my formation or training up until that point was a completely oddball proposal. And uh, I don't know if it was that it was, I don't know, but also, you know, so visceral and, you know, brought forth all these really pertinent questions like, yeah, I don't know how to do this thing. How am I going to do this thing? Well, you know, I have all this body training. Surely I can come up with some strategies in this instant to try and be engaged in that and to connect with whatever might be meaningful about, you know, this particular task that seems so specific, but also open. And uh, yeah, I did a workshop with them for a week, for five days, and then probably, I don't know, you know, after that, it was just like, I don't know, the rest, the story is still writing itself. I mean, I feel like I'm, I still am seeking them out. I'm learning from them with them. Uh, you know, have been connecting to, uh, you know, like, start to take like these movement workshops all over the world and starting to connect with all these different people. So then there's like this uh, kind of network or dialogue that's all of a sudden being created with these people in different parts of the world. And also that I think is as much a part of the practice as finding myself in the room with the, the co-founders or the co-developers, Linda and Yosef. So yeah, it's very interesting. I'm, I'm very compelled by it. But that's how that's how I found Fighting Monkey. It was by chance on, a, I guess, March, maybe five years ago, like early in the year, winter here in Montreal, pushing my partner down on the floor. <laughs> so I got to get, get more of this in my life. What is this all about? It's so mysterious and concrete. I don't know. What yeah. when I've so the last couple of weeks we've we've talked to a couple of martial artists and before that we talked to Tom Wexler who's a he comes from a dance background but also practices jujitsu and I remember being at a the, the workshop that I would have been at with you and Yosef talking about the 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 value of grappling and how he thinks everybody should be grappling and all these things and I have said for a long time that I feel like the distance between things like contemporary dance and grappling the distance is very, very small. It's, it's such a short distance. And Tom just said that it's like, it, it's so similar. It's really just a different form of communication. Yeah, yeah, and, definitely. And that's what he felt like attracted to is like, oh, it's, it's in this same space, but it's an opportunity to, to, to communicate differently. Maybe this like more aggressive form of communication. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've taken one grappling class, mm -hmm. one, Mm -hmm. and uh in jujitsu and um you know yeah i mean i think the first thing that you learn is like you partner up and you learn techniques mm -hmm. 
which is like, you know, kind of a choreography. You're learning choreography. Mm -hmm. Or like as a dancer, like that's how I was thinking about it. It was okay, like take the arm, like move it this way, get yourself in this way. And like, mm -hmm. that's what we do when we learn and make dances. It's exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, those, those, those qualities are really shared. It's about yeah. figuring out how these bodies are gonna go together and then move together. And uh, yeah, kind of make something together, make something happen together, I guess. Are you still um, performing as a dancer or is your time more focused on, on teaching? Um, I am still performing as a dancer. So mm -hmm. I just turned 40 in February. With, so happy, it feels- Happy birthday. Yeah, yeah. It, it feels miraculous that I still have uh, you know, a career as a performer. And I say that mostly because I think when I was in my early 20s, you know, my assumption was that the life of a dancer or a performing artist was, you know, what realistically wouldn't extend to up to where I am right now. But, you know, of course, as an artist, you're, you're making, uh, I guess, you know, you're creating channels for your artistry, right? So naturally, as I age, why wouldn't the shape of those channels uh, shift and evolve to account for my aging artist self and that's what's happening and it's uh it's it does feel like a little miracle but it, you know it also feels quite um quite natural that that things would evolve in that way and i'm very happy to find myself still as a performer but also also now as a teacher now that i have teaching is is becoming more and more a part of professionally what i do so what are some of the things that you talk about like as a as as someone evolving and changing like what are what are some of the observations you've you've made that are maybe like oh if I look back like when I was a professional dancer at 25 versus a professional dancer at 40 like what are some of like the things that stand out to you is like oh well that's that's different that's not the same well I think my relationship to time is really different you know mm -hmm. when I was 25 there was a really big urgency to um acquire I guess the bulk of the skills that I would need to perform. So in that sense, there was like this real density and sense of needing to accomplish a certain density in a smaller amount of time. Mm -hmm. Whereas now my relationship is that, you know, I'm almost trying to do the opposite. I'm like trying to extend time out a little bit and to take more time and um, maybe, yeah, to be dealing with, complexity or density yeah in a different way with time I think that's probably the big the big difference I mean of course we could go and we could talk about you know like oh I'm 25 like I kind of throw my body around the space and like I'm not worried about my knees and whatever yeah. of course those things also too those things yeah. I have a very different relationship to my knees now that I'm 40 than I did when I was 25 uh, just a different kind of conscientiousness about how I want them to be with me as I age mm -hmm. that I wasn't thinking about when I was 25 quite in the same way. But I'd say the big difference is like how I deal with time. I'm like, yeah, you know, I've, and, and also too, this has something to do with like having, I guess, uh, experienced certain things as a performer as well. Right. I, I maybe we could liken it to like, if I was, if, or like an athlete who, you know, has like a, a moment where they're really competing quite a lot. Mm 
Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, like, you know, getting out there and doing like a, a, a great deal of dancing and then all of a sudden, you know, like that, it's not just about ensuring that I have certain performing performance um, experiences. Now there's like this other complexity that's emerging in terms of how I approach my practice and my work. That's not just about making sure that like I get to perform at a big stage for like a lot of people and work that I feel is important, you know, which is for sure was like very much on my mind when I was entering the professional sphere as a dancer when I was 24. Yeah, I can relate to that. It's like when you're young, you're so like everything needs to happen now. Like the idea of like anything, you know, the idea of 15 years down the road even existing is like unrealistic. And then at some point you kind of like, settle in and you're like oh like this thing keeps going right yeah. and that and that 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 time aspect really changes when did you begin teaching i began teaching probably like really 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 began like in 2009 mm -hmm. so the first four years of my dance career i worked with this really amazing uh under this really amazing artistic director who also taught us and so, um, yeah, I felt very compelled to teach because I was quite inspired by what he was offering. His name was Peter Bonham, and he's actually hails from Rochester. So he was uh, kind of an American expat who eventually transplanted himself in Montreal and then in Ottawa, our, our nation's capital <laughs> here in Canada. That's where we may be headed to next. Really? To Ottawa? I don't know, to Canada, maybe. Both Alexa well, and I have uh, passports, and uh, considering the state of things, it's uh, maybe a good destination for us. Yeah, why not? Wow, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I've, I'm still here. I enjoy here. I enjoy <laughs> Canada very much. Um, but yeah, so I, you know, I was, I was for sure, you know, you work with somebody who's like quite inspiring, and, um, you know, teaching also becomes a way to said some of those things that, um, you know, were very inspiring to me in, in motion and to, you know, be, I guess, um, broaching this question of like, how do I share these things that I feel like were very meaningful to me? So mm -hmm. to create some kind of an outlet for that. And so in 2009 was like the, really the first time that I started doing some teaching and trying to self-organize classes and also, you know, seek out these other, um, I guess, platforms to be teaching. So in dance, there's a lot of uh, organizations and institutions that offer, you know, there's like the conservat conservatory style training institutions that are, you know, have programs that are training pre-professional uh, contemporary dancers. And then there's also, um, you know, platforms that are offering different types of training to dance professionals um, to, to keep their training going. And I'd say this is one thing that maybe uh, where dance is, I don't know the exception to the rule, but but feels like a little exceptional in that there's like this constant opportunity. There's like professional development opportunity that's just ongoing. And I don't know if I quite say it's an expectation, but I mean, I don't know if it's I, I, I don't know if it's wise to not engage in like a continued professional development as a dancer, just because, you know, you're using your you're recruiting your body all the time and you want to make sure that you have a good connection with your body. So. But uh, yeah, there's a lot of organizations who offer professional development. And so I, you know, in 2009, I was starting to kind of seek out these different ways that I might be able to find myself teaching uh, dancers, usually at the pre-professional or the professional level. That was kind of my, my goal. Yeah. And then after, after Fighting Monkey, then, then things kind of really shifted gears. All, all these other 
all these other questions emerged <laughs> about about te- what what is it that I want to share. Right. So then that evolved. So you started out by kind of teaching information that you had learned from a, a teacher or a couple of teachers that you really appreciated. Mm-hmm. And in some ways it was just, it was a lot of like, um, just redigesting their information and putting it back out, right? I guess in some sense, I mean, and, and I think like, how can I, yeah, thinking about how I want to talk about this. So I guess what's, if I think about kind of these two things, like where I started mm-hmm. with the work that I did when I was a dancer in Ottawa and kind of where I am now mm-hmm. with Fighting Monkey being like a huge uh, motor for how I'm thinking about and sharing uh, practice. Um, they were both principle driven approaches. Mm-hmm. So when I started teaching, so, so which basically means is that like, instead of having, uh, I guess like these constructed exercises that you would be offering students, it was like the exercises were more a vehicle for the, the principles to be shared. So like movement principles, I don't know, like, can we name a few together? Right. You must have some principles that you follow right. when, when you're teaching. Right. It's like you're playing games to, extract tools exactly right? yeah like you're trying about, to kind it's of not about it's not about the exercise or the game it's about what you're trying to get out of it like exactly foot, like coordination a, whatever like yeah some kind of a core idea or value that is finding expression in like all these different ways like across different exercises or whatever and that was your same experience with um your your dancing teacher as well yes oh interesting yeah. It is interesting. I'm not familiar with the contemporary dance world. I don't know if that's a, a common theme where it's like, oh, let's attack principles or let's attack technique or, or let's address both pretty comfortably. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that, that is interesting to me. Yeah, well, I think maybe it's not so unusual. Maybe it's more common now or more visible now as an approach to practicing dance. Uh, but when I started, it felt like a complete anomaly, you know, like we were still doing, so yeah, I mean, in dance you have, um, uh, you know, you, like if we think about ballet as the model for like a, tra- like a dance class, like something that's like a standard, mm-hmm. um, you know, you do you like a series of kind of, uh, of exercises, like at the bar, like you do your tondus and your, your plies and your batmas. So in other words, like working on, uh, you know, but all these things are, I guess even ballet is a little, you know, is principally driven in, in some sense. I mean, you know, like a tondu has a value of a, a certain kind of um, like an activation in the leg. So it's it's asking you to activate in a certain way. It's being expressed by a tondu, but ultimately it's like it exists in the dance class to activate the, the leg in a kind of way. And then, of course, there's like the, you know, the, the aesthetic level as well. You know, the plie, it's like you could think about it like it's a kind of a squat, you know, like you're shifting in the in the vertical space. Like, how do you get down and how do you come up? Like, what is lifting the mass of your body? How does that mm-hmm. how does that um uh, what does that mean for a work in the legs or how you might organize your body of all the different parts that are in relationship to be able to accomplish that, you know? Um, so I guess ballet in some sense is doing that, but you know, when I was taking this class out in Ottawa with, uh, with the artistic director out there for the company that I worked for, you know, he would say things like this one's for the eyes or like this one's for, yeah, this is like the foot warm up, like this is the coordination. So mm-hmm. already we were like starting to speak in a slightly different kind of language about things. Mm-hmm. And, 
yeah and the way that the the principles were expressed were like was super was very much uh not like a standard like they really had the the imprint of of this particular artist this particular person mm -hmm. like you would never get uh uh you know you'd never get a plie like that from anybody else like that was really peter's take on the plie mm -hmm. yeah so, so then when you started teaching <laughs> So then when you started teaching, these were this was how you like began kind of attacking your classes. You're like, let's let's go into principles rather than technique necessarily. Yeah, exactly. Well the print the principles became yeah, the principles kind of became the motor for like addressing the technique. So like kind of one of the early ideas was uh was actually, funnily enough, something that I'm still dealing with in Finding Monkey, which was the weight of the head, the weight of the shoulders, and the weight of your pelvis. Mm -hmm. So uh, how do we how do we figure out how to move those different weights like you know so then when I was when I when I started teaching you know my exercises I wasn't thinking about like okay I need to make a really good tondu it was like oh I need to make a really good exercise that's going to allow us to connect with the weight of the head the shoulders the pelvis all together individually like I need to, you know, so, so like that was the question. So that already felt really different because I think had I not had that experience, I probably would have created a dance class that was just more to the standard model. Like this is a plie, now we do a batman, now we do a tondu, then we're going to do the jump phrase across the floor. I mean, yeah, dance kind of has this like real code in its tradition. Again, I think there's, there's definitely, uh, we could, we could easily find some models that are that are not following that standard but uh yeah and it's i i think i would have approached it very differently had i not encountered and worked for this artist in ottawa and at the time were you doing like supplemental work to keep your body healthy um no not really mm -hmm. i mean i had a pretty what felt like a pretty jam-packed day in my first company job, which I did for four years. Mm -hmm. You know, we would train for an hour and a half. That was class, so uh, dance class, which would be like your kind of technical practice. Mm -hmm. And then we would work from, uh, you know, we'd work until six, you know, with like a few kind of breaks like peppered in between. So, you know, 10 to six, that's, that's enough. <laughs> I would hope so. Yeah, that's enough moving in a day. I mean, yeah, I, I would maybe, you know, maybe if I was having like a body issue or I kind of felt like, you know, like maybe I would go to like a yoga class if I felt like I needed to just kind of collect my energy in a specific way. Or maybe I'd go to Pilates if I felt like I needed to address a specific imbalance in my body. So for sure, I was seeking out those things some of the time, but the majority of the time, no, pretty much everything I needed was... Uh, for the most part contained in the in in my day for what i needed to sustain physically what i was doing okay i ask only because and you can correct me if i'm wrong but my, uh, correct me if i'm wrong but my understanding was that uh part of where like fighting monkey kind of derived from was to create some sort of supplemental work to help the dancers you know maintain themselves and then it kind of grew into a, a broader movement practice that's why i was asking if you if you had some sort of supplemental work that was connected to your your um dance career at that time to help keep yourself going yeah it's like playing well, a professional sport i mean yeah like i mean <laughs> there's so much to say about this i think because because the i guess the venue 
that, that we're talking about the training, like the milieu that the training is taking place in here, dance, art, you know, can get really like, there's just like a great variety. So what I would need would be so contingent on like any number of things. So like the first four years of my career, like it was really, oh, look, my little cat's just walking <laughs> in the background. Amazing. Really <laughs> the first cute. The first four years of my career, I was like super, uh, I really had all, I really felt very taken care of by the company, you know, like I really kind of had what I need to be able to do my job. Mm -hmm. And then, so that's really different than the, than then kind of the circumstance of the conditions now that I exist in as an artist. So I would call myself an independent dance artist, which feels a little bit like a wrong title because of course, I depend on other people all the time. And, I, and I'm a collaborator, like I don't do my job alone. Um, but uh, so I basically work now project to project. I don't work with a set company. People invite me in to be part of different projects to either make or participate in dances that are already made mm -hmm. and to perform them. So that's really different. And so working outside of a company model means that I am now responsible for training myself. And this, I think, is where the, something like Fighting Monkey is, is offering something, you know, potentially really relevant, I think, really specifically to the kind of independent dance artist or freelance dance artist, is that, yeah, I mean, they kind of create a, created a framework for, for practicing that engages, you know, creativity, um, is asking the, the practitioner to relate to things in lots of different ways. So already that's creating like a, a foundation of, you know, thinking about how we're dealing with the material of practice or class in a way that's going to make it kind of transferable. So you're dealing with this like variety and then, yeah. And then how does that then support? And I think that it does how then that information finds itself alive in the other contexts of my life. So the other projects that I might be um, participating in at kind of any given moment, mm -hmm. but uh, yeah, kind of create Yeah. I don't know. I feel like there's more to say about that, but we'll just keep crunching away at it, I guess, as we talk. Right. So yeah. what is Fighting Monkey kind of offering the, the dancer artist? Yeah. Um, so then when you were, you're teaching and you're teaching mostly professional and, and people who are about to become professional dancers. Yeah. Did you start teaching like um, people who had no dance experience at some point after that? Or did you always stick with like the professional or... or semi-professional dancers? Uh, well, I think because I was super interested in teaching and of course teaching at these conservatory style pre-professional or even for the professional community, I mean, it's limited. Also in Montreal, we have like this real um, breadth of, uh, it's quite it's quite amazing here in Montreal. There's, there's quite a breadth of, um, you know, training possibilities uh, for professional artists. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the things that I did because work was limited is I tried to create these channels for myself to teach. And in doing that, uh, you know, different people would come and train with me. I mean, I kind of want to give the example of like the boyfriend of the girl that like I would have taught like in a mm -hmm. university setting or, you know, like these types of things started to happen. And then so slowly this like different, a community of, of people is, is, uh, you know, trying to, or it is, they want to find themselves in the, in the space with me or are curious about kind of what I'm doing. I mean, I think also we, we need to say that, that, um, uh, you know, I think what the fighting monkey is offering, you know, you could, 
you could, it is also happening as kind of this, a certain like movement uh, or a, like a shift in how we're thinking about how we want to be practicing and moving our bodies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, fighting monkey is, is emerging as this kind of evolution is also happening in the, the like the, I don't know if you want to call it like the fitness milieu, like the, I don't know, like this athletic sports training milieu, like the dance milieu, like there's, there's some kind of shift in how, I mean, there's always things shifting, but uh, I do see how Fighting Monkey is, is feeling like it has like this special pertinence in, I don't know, in, in this current kind of context of, of, or like this shift of that, that I perceive happening and how we want to approach kind of practicing with and training and moving our bodies. We want something more than just like doing a bicep curl, you know, people right. are like, how can I do a barrel turn? Like, I want to do that, you know, like. Well, it's funny because it's like, it's like, it's, it's something <laughs> that was existing in certain worlds for a long time. Like I went and took yeah. a, um, a class that was at like a big dance center in Manhattan. And they mm -hmm. have, you know, like, you know, these places, they have like 30 different dance studios and there's classes going on all over the place. Uh, you're walking through you're about to enter and you're like oh you know i've i'm doing something that's kind of like counterculture <laughs> and then you walk in there and you see all these dancers and you're like you guys have been doing this forever mm -hmm. right like it's only <laughs> now that like suddenly people in this other kind of sphere are realizing things that that people like uh like contemporary dancers really specifically have been doing for a really long time mm -hmm. only now is it like oh well let's try to like add a little bit to it and also like you know like you said develop some of these principles yeah in a way to attack the principles right yeah yeah what's happening in dance what's happening in jujitsu what's that kung fu person doing like what's that tennis player up to like how are how are they thinking about the body maybe mm -hmm. it might be interesting if i connect with some of those ideas mm-hmm yeah i think things are in conversation in a really beautiful way right now it i mean at least you know, that's kind of my perspective. I, I think we're, we're, yeah, we're looking more to make these connections. Mm -hmm. I always say it's like, we're looking to these counterculture activities, right? These things that are like the barrier to entry is actually much thicker because there's a lot of failure involved. Whereas I've talked with other people and it's like the fitness sphere is always about like, what's the quickest, easiest way to like make people feel proud of themselves. Whereas uh -huh. all these other things, like you said, the dance and the jujitsu, rock climbing, like it's just like the barrier is thick. You got to work a lot harder to like dig into what what the hell is happening in there. Really? And tell me more about that. Yeah, I just think that um, fitness is really built around like, um, you know, pleasing people. And I think that things like movement, things like jujitsu, things like contemporary dance, they're not about they're not about immediate uh, or instant gratification. They're about being a part of a process and, and accepting failure. And we're in like a culture that wants to try to sweep failure under the rug a little bit, right? So my yeah, favorite I, the people I've gotten to work with as yeah, students or as collaborators or through conversation, the people who are really seem prepared are, are the people who come from a background like dance or, or skateboarding or surfing or chess you know these things where it's just like there's a lot of failure you got to go through yeah do you think that there's not a lot of failure and like kind of a general or like a traditional fitness culture 
not you have to go through. I think it's being like pulled away because people want that um, instant gratification. Matt, who suggested uh, having you on, says that um, a lot of people are addicted to competence. <laughs> and I think that that's true. And I think that we do a lot to appease that addiction. And in, in fitness, you see a lot of that where it's like, well, let's just make this like the thing that like everyone walks in and feels like they were successful, not realizing that the success is probably in the failure. Hmm right? Like you're not going to be a successful surfer unless you go out and fall on some waves for a while. You know, you're not going to be a successful dancer unless you go in there and feel like an idiot a lot of the time. You know, you're not going to feel like a, a you know, what jujitsu is about unless you go in there and get choked a whole bunch. Right. You know, in fitness, there's not a lot of that same thing. It's kind of like, oh, hey, good job. You showed up. Let's make it as super accessible as possible for you. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I guess uh, for sure, I, I believe that that's, I, I can, I can appreciate how that would be true. But also, you know, I also think about, I don't know, you know, like, doing a push up, like, this is not, I mean, not everybody can do that right away. Like, that's also has its own process, maybe it's a little bit shorter. Mm -hmm. But it's, it still seems like there's a little bit of a process to be able to achieve something. Yeah, I like think that. that I think you're different. right. Just, maybe I'm maybe I'm splitting hairs. I don't know. I, I'm always. I guess I'm, there's this like this part of me that's always skeptical when people are like, you know, or I'm gonna say it like how you say it, like dance. Like there's this process, and you know, that's it's like working on some greater complexity. But mm -hmm. you know, I, I I guess there's always this part of me that feels like I need to demystify that a little bit because I'm sure that going into a gym can there's like we also have to imagine that it also has like this complexity, like, you know, like doing a push up. there's a process to that, or, you know, there's a technique to that, or there's a nuance to that, or, you know, it can also uh, have these, you know, there can also be like this spectrum of like iteration about how you're going to do that. Are you just going to do the push up? Are you going to push up and clap? Are you going to do the wide push up? Are you going to be on your knuckle? You know, like they all kind of do different things for you. Like, mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I don't know. Anyway. So, so maybe I'm splitting hairs and I'm maybe I'm no, like, maybe I, I don't disagree. I think, I think <laughs> more that it's like, there's a lot of like, it's a lot of like, let's check this thing off the box and say that we right. can be proud of ourselves. And from a cultural perspective, like in the fitness culture, it's not, a, it's not about this thing that we're talking about. It's not necessarily about um, really developing kind of our, our human potential or exploring our human potential a lot of it is just like, oh, well, let's just develop the aesthetic and we'll move on from there, right? And that's sure. a little bit like a, a, a safer place to exist in. But not to take anything away from it being intimidating to walk in and all these things, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess maybe if I was gonna um, say it in a certain way, like maybe the, the way that you're asked to be in relationship with the thing is maybe like simple or uh, superficial in a sense, like checking, asking me to check the box. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty reduced engagement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe the most reduced. Like right. I don't, I don't just want to show up and check the box. Right. Yeah. I want to do the push up in like 20 different ways. I, I want to see what it's all about. I want to learn about it and right. what, what I am like in it, you know, when I right. do it for sure. Right. So because that's already a more kind of elaborated 
relationship or potential that's being expressed but it's not the push-up itself that's like that's creating that barrier it's it's really the model or the approach that's being set in place or the channel that's that's created for for that activity to happen yeah 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 exactly so that's why i think that there's something really to like the people who have this other kind of mindset it's not even necessarily a physical thing that's why i even mentioned chess it's like it's this willingness to fail. It's this willingness to be a part of a, a process, to be a part of a discipline. Um, and I think you're right. I think you're right that that's becoming a thing. I think people are, are m- becoming more willing to be a part of that who haven't had it maybe as kids or young adults where they were part of something that was what I would call counterculture practice or what anyone, other name that someone gives it, um, but something where you've had to fall on your face a lot. I think people are seeking it out a little bit more. And I think it can be attributed to a lot of these different things around movement culture in some way. Yeah. Man, do you think people really want to fall on their face? (laughs) I mean, I embrace failure, of course, as part of the process. But like, do you think that's something that people want to experience? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think I think falling on your face, like I said, is different in every in every context. But I think that, yeah, I think that so there are certain things and then, you know, it's still, you know, nothing that we're doing is, is mainstream, obviously, but I think people who are being attracted to it are being attracted to this idea of like, oh, like, this is, this is a discipline. This is, this, this is trial and error. This is tinkering. This is falling. This is failing. This is, you know, working at, at something for a longer period of time than just showing up and, and, you know, swiping my key card. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, when, when you were, when you started kind of gravitating towards like teaching people who didn't come from a dance background. Okay, wait a minute. Can I interject for a quick second before we move on to the last yeah. topic? <laughs> yeah. I, I almost want to say that like the thing that you're describing, maybe it would be apt for us to say like it has no goal. <laughs> yeah. Like this process that you're describing, like the failing and the tinkering and whatever, it's not really connected to an outcome. Like it kind of can't be at a certain point. It just has to be about engagement. I think that's the discipline aspect of it. It's like we keep coming to this thing and maybe it'll give me something, but maybe it won't. And, you know, I really, I check my expectations at the door because I'm not here because I'm interested in a particular outcome. Right. Yeah. Which is the better way to to exist. I always use the, the Everest example where it's like, to me, the person who is like into the fitness thing is the person who will like pay the big company to like escort them to the top of Everest and make sure it happens. Whereas the person who is like the explorer that you're describing, no goal necessarily, is like, well, I'm going to climb Everest, but I'm going to go and like, I'm going to learn how to speak Nepalese and I'm going to become a real rock climber and I'm going to do all these these smaller climbs and try to do it on my own and I'm going to try to like make this thing happen. Eh, if I don't make it, look at all the work I did to try to get there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But of course, to take it practically back to what I'm doing, which is mm-hmm. a lot of the times training pre-professional dancers or mm-hmm. professionals, mm-hmm. I do have to deliver something. Oh, so here I was saying that like the process doesn't have to, ha- it shouldn't have an outcome, shouldn't be defined by the outcome necessarily, mm-hmm. but also that you know, we can't deny that there are certain outcomes that we're seeking out, I guess. You know, there's just so much nuance to these topics. Yeah, because it it can't be just one or the other. It's like, 
there's like this whole gradation that mm -hmm. is part of that's part of the work yeah. like yeah no outcome then also like yeah but also i need to be supporting people in this like really specific way so yeah. that is delivering something that's about an outcome you know so yeah mm -hmm. That's a lot of pressure in your position, right? When you have to be like working with people like that and, and, and they have a certain expectation of where you're, you're supposed to get them to. Well, I guess it's like a pressure, but it, I think it mostly is just about like a rigor. It mostly means that I need to be rigorous in a really particular kind of way or in a way I need to be rigorous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't, can't phone it in. Mm -hmm. <laughs> people want it. People want to dance. I can't phone it in. <laughs> so right now, like when you teach, right now, how much of your time is spent with professional dancers and how much of your time is spent with people who are practicing movement with you or, or, um, or people who don't have a dance background or anything? Ooh, like right, right now? Or mm -hmm. like this year? <laughs> yeah, in general. Because I mean, this is maybe like another thing where I think like our teaching, um, maybe like a difference in our teaching is that I'm not I'm not teaching classes all the time. Mm -hmm. Like there's like these little kind of blocks where I teach mm -hmm. in these very kind of different, but you know, also similar contexts. So, um, you know, in the course of a year, I, I, it's not like I'm teaching at this, I don't teach at the same space all the time, you know, like I'm kind of travel around and I'm teaching like different groups and the different groups have like different needs. Mm -hmm. Like right, right now I'm teaching, uh, I'm teaching a university course uh, online through uh, Simon Fraser University. So right now that's what I'm doing. So I'm working with pre-professional artists uh, for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, but let me think like, you know, I have like zero recollection of my calendar, but you know, like if I think back to like kind of fall 2019, I was teaching a class at a studio here in Montreal as part of a, like a weekly class series. So I was offering like one class a week mm -hmm. and you know, like a whole bunch of different people would, would come and take that class. So people from, you know, maybe different, different classes that I've taught who are, who are coming back to find me again, or people who frequent the studio who, um, yeah, who just are like continuing class because they have a relationship with the studio and they like to take classes there and it's convenient. So uh, the breadth of, of, of practitioner that I would encounter in, in the class that I taught in the fall is very different than the, the, the breadth of practitioner that I that I encounter in the in the in the situation that I'm teaching right now. And what is the class you're teaching? Online? Right now, I'm, I'm teaching a class uh, again through Simon Fraser University. It's called Choreography Lab. Okay. So we are, uh, yeah, we're looking at the fighting monkey practice together. We're studying that as a vehicle to mobilize, uh, co-creating something together. So we're working to build a choreography together. And so the fighting monkey work is. I guess, kind of like the practical, like technical training aspect mm -hmm. that's enlivening our, we're, we're basically going to make like a kind of an improvisation together. We're going to improvise together. What? So that sounds amazing. It is amazing. Will there yeah. be some way that people can watch this? People will be able to watch it. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't know yet. I don't think because a few institutions who had to quickly kind of transition to online classes, mm -hmm. um, a lot of these conservatory or like university programs, like you'll do um, kind of a year end performance or there'll be some kind of performance opportunity that's attached to the coursework. And so in uh, during the pandemic, uh, because of the quick transition or pivot, that's like the good, 
word of the moment, pivoting online, a lot of these performances rolled out like uh, online through a portal such as this. Um, and I was thinking that maybe we might do a performance online, but I'm also kind of thinking that maybe we might do a video. I don't know. It's still to be determined. <laughs> I, th I think, think we might make a video together. I think it might be like a little capsule. Uh, yeah. That's cool. I would love to, uh, to see that. I'm super interested now. Yeah, I'll send you a link. Yeah, absolutely. So um, with, with all like the different, in like the sphere of movement culture, right? There's like a, there's like a handful of methodologies, right? What kind of brought you in the direction that you're in and, and what kept you there or what keeps you there or, or what continues to like keep you interested in that place? And I don't know, maybe have you like explored other methodologies that are out there? Uh, let's, should we name some of the other methodologies that kind of sit alongside Fighting Monkey? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, okay. Yeah. So like, uh, there's Ido Portal, right? Fighting Monkey. And then like, there's these other things that kind of like exist kind of around, like, if you want to look at mobility, there's things like FRC. What's FRC? I'm just gonna, this is the oh. bit where you learn about my, 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 the ways that my knowledge is limited. <laughs> yeah, functional range, conditioning. Okay. Yeah, it's like a, a, a mobility, um, I don't know, they do like certifications and things like that. Um, and then there's like, you know, different teachers in different places. There's people who kind of gravitate towards like hand balancing and more capoeira type movements, like the acrobatics and things. Yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm curious, like, what kind of steered you towards the direction that you, you've moved in? Is it mainly from like the dance background or do you think that there's something else there? Uh, surely there's something else there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would imagine kind of beyond like these two, like say Portal, Fighting Monkey, FRC, is it? Mm -hmm. um, and then like the people who are working on like inversions and like techniques like that, you're getting more into something that's probably more teacher specific or person specific, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to kind of like a bigger, mm -hmm. like I don't consider Fighting Monkey a methodology, but let's say like a methodology or like a modality. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one thing. I think people, I mean, like we're attracted to people, we're compelled by people. Of course, the information is compelling too, but you know, I'm sure there's people who come to train with you and like with Alexa, like Movement Brooklyn, and it's because, you know, like you're you. Yeah, of course, you're offering things that are useful to people, but it's something about the way that you are engaging the person or, you know, like the client or the practitioner. And certainly that's how I feel with Fighting Monkey. I mean, if it's not already obvious, no, I haven't sought out any of these these things that we might consider part of like the current movement culture mm -hmm. uh, outside of fun Fighting Monkey. I mean, I just kind of feel like I found Linda in USF and uh, was was so compelled by kind of them as like a couple working together. I mean, I think that that's something that it's like you're, I'm in the room with them and I'm witnessing a, a dialogue. Like they're already kind of, there's, there's already this, this seed of one of the main kind of principles, which is the kind of the principle of communication. Like we need to be in communication with something that I'm already seeing in front of me, just in the way that they're teaching. They're two, like not one, you know, the dialogue is already happening. I mean, that's part of it. Certainly the fact that I think when I first encountered them, you know, I knew them as dancers 
first and foremost because they they worked in the contemporary dance milieu they they still work in the contemporary dance milieu mm. um so i was drawn to them in that kind of way yeah i was super curious about all these other influences that they were pulling and you know from uh different sports um you know martial arts uh sculpting um yeah that that these things were finding their uh, a way into i guess to work to express the values of the practice mm -hmm. and that it wasn't about just kind of finding like this expresses this and this expresses this, but mm -hmm. like kind of creating like this giant net of like all these things. And, and then like seeing how like things intersect. I mean, I think that that's like a super interesting aspect about the, the structure of, of, of what they've, they've set in motion. Um, which is like mutating all the time, you know, like it's, it's like a moving, it's a net isn't even like a good image because a net, you know, has still these fixed relationships to mm -hmm. some degree, but you know, yeah, like, it's like this, it's like, I need a dance to describe it. I need a bad hand dance on zoom to describe yeah. the way that, that the different parts of the technique are, are kind of moving around and finding new relationships and, uh, uh, creating like kind of the, the meaning of the work mm -hmm. uh, in the moment. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like I've maybe gotten off track from your question. No. But, uh, the, 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 big, the big things to know are I, I haven't sought out anything else. And, you know, really what's kind of unraveling is like this really beautiful complexity and like kind of more possibility for how I can engage. So yes, I go to the workshops with Joseph and Linda and that's amazing. But then, you know, I also teach my class at SFU and that's like a, a forum for me to be learning about what I'm sharing and what I, how I'm thinking about what I'm sharing. And then that gets integrated into my own personal practice. And then, uh, you know, and then I reach out to, you know, some of my friends, uh, you know, like who I can see online here, Elfie Schroeder, who's like in Toronto, you know, and like see what she's up to, who's, who's also working in Fighting Monkey and like teaching and like, mm -hmm. how are you thinking about things? And, you know, like maybe reaching out to like Jakob or Natalia who are out in Europe, who are, who are also kind of part of the, uh, like a, a fight, Fighting Monkey group and representing Fighting Monkey. And mm -hmm. yeah, or like even Matt, you know, like talking to Matt and seeing what he's, you know, what he's, what he's doing, like all these, there's like a whole kind of network Mm -hmm. uh that's uh like feeding my engagement with the practice and mm -hmm. my engagement with the practice is is all these things as well it's okay. me taking notes it's me you know doing my one-legged balance like every day it's it's going to the workshops it's sending a message to my fellow practitioners it's mm -hmm. all of that is the practice it's and it's not work it's not practice in the sense of labor and work it's just it's like, uh, these are all kind of channels for me to be thinking about what this thing is, I guess, and, and, and how I want to be connected to it and how it's connected to me. I like that. I like the idea that it's like, it's not defined as like, these are the moments of practice that you're talking about your entire life being the practice, just kind of like in different shapes and molds at different times. Yeah, it has like a really beautiful fluidity. <laughs> yeah. Someone wrote a question in here, so I want to make <laughs> sure I ask it for them. Um, also, if anyone else has a question, you're welcome to, to type it in. Um, if you feel like you'd like to ask it out loud, you're obviously welcome to raise your hand and I'll, I'll let you jump on real quick and ask your question. Um, the question is, how does the expression 
of a cool movement differ from a beautiful movement as a function of practice slash outcome slash expression? Cool versus, wait, cool versus what? How does, cool versus... How does a cool movement differ from a beautiful movement as a function of, of practice, outcome, or expression, if it does at all? Huh. I don't know. I don't know if I know how to answer that because I think to answer it, I would need to have like an idea of there being a difference between something that's cool and something that's beautiful. Or there, there seems to be a, a something in the question that's pointing to a difference between something that's cool and, and something that's beautiful. And that's, I, I would need to learn more about that before I can answer that question, I think. <laughs> they, they, they both sound um, very subjective to me. Yes, yeah, of course. I mean, what we're attracted to is really subjective. I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, yeah, you know, like cool. Okay, so if I'm gonna be like, you know, try and I, I guess get myself to whatever I think the answer to this question is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cool might, sounds like it, it might be like impressive or that I might have some kind of superficial connection to it maybe like, like virtuosic and like the most kind of superficial way, maybe, I don't know, cool and beautiful. Maybe there's like something kind of more profound or like uh, kind of a quality to it, like something beyond just what I'm seeing, like the value of what I'm seeing. Yeah. Okay, now I need to go back to the question. What's the process I, to arrive at those different things? <laughs> no. How does the expression of a cool move, the expression of a cool movement differ from the expression of a beautiful movement as a function of practice, outcome, expression? Oh, I, 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 I don't know. <laughs> I think... I think a, a movement can be cool, obviously, and, and not have some of that substance to it, right? The subjective qualities that you kind of talked about. Uh, but beauty comes from like the integration of uh, the objective and the subjective kind of coming together, right? You could do a pretty impressive, I don't know, backflip, but it might not be beautiful, but people are like, oh, that's pretty cool. Um, but if you layer in that subjective quality, I think that that's where, where beauty comes in. Um, yeah, I mean, because certainly, certainly a backflip can be beautiful. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, but if it's not obvious to me as the viewer, kind right. of what it's connected to, it's kind of deeper, subjective, right. more, what it's more deeply connected to or, or what it might mean to the practitioner who's doing it. Maybe I can't connect to its beauty or maybe it's going to be harder for me to connect to its beauty. Right. So yeah. I think maybe maybe the process has something to do with exposing something of that greater connection to the thing that I'm witnessing. Mm -hmm. So when you practice then, um, like with your students, is that, a, is that something that you try to instill in them? Is that uh, it's not just attacking this game or attacking this movement or attacking this process objectively, but also instilling that like, oh, like we want this quality. We want, you know, this beauty or this, this, this subjective, like this thing that we, you, you, you can taste, but you can't see, or you can't explain necessarily. Yeah, I think we're definitely, uh, in my classes, I think, I feel 
uh, I try to set in motion a kind of a greater curiosity for how we're connecting to the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And certainly, uh, you know, quality or seeking out uh, some kind of a quali the qualitative nature of how we're relating to something is part of that, part of how that's being mm -hmm. explored or eventually expressed. Yeah. But I, I got to tell you, I, I feel like we don't do too many tricks in my class. You know what I mean? I, you'd be hard pressed to look at my class and be like, oh, yeah, that or no, maybe that's not true. Uh, maybe things, maybe there are some cool things that that are visible, but it's not. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I think I think we do great things that are like super physical and yeah, I guess could be considered kind of cool or impressive in that kind of cool way. But yeah, the, the, the foundation of the way that we're connecting with the material is really, yeah, like these qual like relational, uh, qualitative, um, like communicative. Uh, yeah, like think, thinking about, you know, like how, yeah, that it's, yeah, kind of this, I guess the subjective nature of, uh, of, of all these different things that we're working on. It's about me in relation to something and something in relationship with me that I'm like a part of that equation. It doesn't exist on its own without me someplace, you know? And how, yeah. and how I mean, I'm asking because it's a really hard thing, I think, to like, to tackle, right, with, with students, especially students who don't necessarily come from a performance background or an art background or a, or a dance background, but like expressing that to people, the difference between like, doing the thing and doing the thing with that, that, that extra something. Um, do you have any, any tools you use when you communicate that to people or is it something that you do? I don't know, just through leading and, 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 and long-term practice. Well, I think kind of one thing that's could potentially be very easily set in motion is this idea of like listening or observation. Mm -hmm. So when you're in relationship to something and that can be like a form or, you know, like another, another, uh, it can be a form. So like something aesthetic, so like back to our great example of like the push up, <laughs> or, um, you know, you can be in relation to something, a person, an object, like a training tool. Mm -hmm. um, there's like this. Yeah. I mean, this is like the communicative element, right? It's like, I'm not just imposing something on those things. It's like, I need to have a channel open to be observant. And so what does it mean to be in observation or listening in any one of those contexts? Mm -hmm. When faced with the push-up, what am I listening to? When I'm practicing jujitsu with a partner, what, what feedback can I glean through kind of listening and observing or like sensing my partner or um, yeah, like these types of things, like finding ways to set listening observation to create a space where that is part of what we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. I think already you're accessing like some other layer of like this process and the complexity of how you can be engaging in the thing. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't need to do much. Sometimes it's really as simple as just be like, listen, you know, or like observe like what's happening with your breath or, you know, like you can, you can add this specificity, but you know, ultimately it's something as simple as like observation and yeah. it can just open whole new worlds. And I think it's very generative, like listening, listening. If I engage in listening, it can, if I listen well enough, it can give me the cue for the next thing that I need to do. 
You know what I mean? It's, it's generative in this kind of way. Mm -hmm. It's like, I don't need to keep inventing out of nowhere what happens next. Uh, it's mm -hmm. like, if I tap into what's happening, the thing that I'm engaged in this communication and the relationship that I'm engaged in, it's like, I'll get cues for where I need to go mm -hmm. for what needs to happen next or what I need to engage or like whatever it is I'm doing, you know, like it'll be, it'll be clear to me at some point if I set that observation in moment in uh, in motion someone else wrote a question here um and they just kind of want to know how you use imagination as a tool <laughs> how do i use imagination as a tool mm -hmm. well um i think when i teach or, you know, yeah, lead class, facilitate, whatever. I try to create a space where the practitioner feels like uh Oh, you cut out. I can't hear you. Can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Go for it. Again. Okay. Where the practitioner where the practitioner has agency to bring whatever of their experience or knowledge into the room. So by, I don't know, it doesn't seem right to get, say a permission, but I mean, yeah, I think in, in dance class for me, when I'm leading, it's like, yeah, you, I, you want to bring all this stuff that you already know about into the room, which in some sense is, connected to your imagination because it's your whole kind of embodied knowledge base that you are imagining or remembering or you know whatever like that's kind of a way that uh i i guess that's kind of the i guess the big way is that there's space for that like you come with everything that you already have you don't leave that at the door like that's part of your toolbox for how you're investigating whatever we do here together mm -hmm. and then and then what after that i mean i'm sure there's just like a whole arsenal of goofy things that i do like mm -hmm. i don't know you know <laughs> like yeah because my class i mean it really rolls out we do all these kind of tasks and games and stuff now um and uh yeah i don't know so you know i'm, I'm sure that i'm like i bring in like different images or like different questions i mean God, just so, so banal, these answers, questions, images, like, of course, those are the things that enliven our imagination. Mm -hmm. That's like, yeah, that's the imagined worlds, right? Mm -hmm. How do you relate to questions and images? That's mm -hmm. what sets that in motion. It's mm -hmm. that simple, I think. It's a powerful, but I guess to, it's a powerful tool, but I guess to keep it in your purview as like an instructor might not be that easy. <laughs> true. That is true. That's true. Yeah. But I, I, I've thought a lot about it. I, um, I forget where I was reading it, but it was even saying that maybe it was this book, um, the, the, the Brain That Changes Itself, talking about like mm -hmm. neuroplasticity. And mm -hmm. even just the idea that like, they have a group of people spend a week like doing some sort of exercise with their finger. And then they have this other group of people only imagine doing that exercise for the same week. Mm -hmm. and the difference between the two was very small. And as a matter of fact, the group that imagined it, given just a day, were able to catch up with the strength or whatever of the group that had been doing it for a week. Mm -hmm. And um, 
just even that idea of just the power of, of, of the mind of imagining something is fascinating, right? Yeah. They say that even just like imagining <clears throat> any sort of skill or technique, the power, the, the, the time you spend doing that can be almost as valuable as, as doing the task at hand. Sure. So once it's integrated into like the, the physical practice, it, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating to imagine. Yeah, I mean, no doubt your your inner world has something to do with what gets expressed in the outer world. So yeah. why deny it as part of the process of practicing or training or whatever? Right. Yeah, finding ways to enliven it totally makes you know, sense. You know, it's not in the real world. It's not any less real than what's happening in the real world because it's it's really happening up there. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe that's like the problem is that we think about it like it's not the real world. Like what's going on in my mind is maybe in my mind, but you know, like that process is real and here I am and I'm existing. Yeah. I don't know, these degrees. It deserves attention. It's real. It's really happening up there. Yeah. It's really going on. (laughs) (laughs) I'm thinking about a waterfall doing my squat or like whatever, you know, maybe like, yeah, totally. (laughs) We have have one more question. So I'll ask you this question and then we'll, we'll wrap up with um, this person wrote, can you speak? to the ways you use constraint to breed creativity in your movement, if you do? Oh, constraint. So, yeah, constraint, I guess I would understand is like making a more limited parameter to be exploring Mm -hmm. a certain thing. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) yeah, like offering a limitation to basically be a little bit more pointed in a certain kind of investigation uh like what would that mean I guess like the best example I can think of is like something that I did in class which is um uh recently I I asked my students to uh just do an exploration where they're like improvising with their arms so in my pra- in the way that I that I approach practice there's like really this value of the you know the whole body working all the time mm-hmm. so <laughs> a more limited way, I guess, of asking the students to be improvising with their arms would be to ask them to situate themselves and like not move their feet. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they move their feet, there's something different is happening or uh, like, I don't want to say their experience of moving their arms becomes more diffuse, but certainly when their feet are rooted on the ground in one place, their experience of their arms is going to be quite specifically influenced by that, that situation. <laughs> so that would be an does that does that answer the question but it's a it's a a tool that you use frequently oh of course Mm -hmm. yeah i think about like um uh offering constraints is is yeah is a way to draw uh a specificity is to draw specificity out in practice it makes me i don't know if you've read the book the art of learning by josh waitskin no Totally worth reading, um, but he talks about he. So he was the movie Searching for Bobby Fischer was based on him. Mm-hmm. He was this like chess prodigy, and then he went on to become like a multi-time like push hands champion. <laughs> at, at one point, Bobby Bobby Fischer did, or the author of the book. The 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 author, <laughs> of the, book is the father of the kid that the book is based on. Okay. Okay, so Josh Waitzkin. He becomes a push hands champion, but at some point while he was training in push hands, I want to say he like broke his hand or something. He had some sort of injury on his arm. 
So in grappling, there's always like this fight to try to get these underhooks because it's a really dominant position where you get both your arms underneath um, the other person's arms, like kind of under their armpits, right? I remember we actually played a game like this when we were at the Fighting Monkey Workshop trying to get both arms wrapped around and hold on. So you get out of double underhooks. And he, because of his broken hand or arm or whatever, he couldn't do it, but he was still practicing because he was supposed to compete in these big national championships or world championships. Because he couldn't do that, he had to give up the underhooks to his training partners because it hurt too much to dig his hand underneath under there. So he would allow them to get to this really dominant position that no one would ever give up in any sort of real competition, but it forced him to learn creative tools to problem solve that situation. So then when he actually got to these competitions, there were moments he would just jump in and give these people these really dominant position because he had developed all these like creative tools for dealing with it and it really, really messed with their heads because they were completely unprepared for somebody who was just gonna be like, oh yeah, get, these, get this double underhook position, but it came from the constraint. Um, and I think that oftentimes people look at it uh, like an injury is an opportunity to stop doing something, but oftentimes the constraint of the injury can be a really powerful um, driver towards creativity as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, a limitation, imposing a limitation is a creative tool mm -hmm. because it's forcing you to direct your focus to other strategies, just as you've described in your story. Yes. So to not be reliant on, say, the dominant strategies or, you know, if we could um, offer another word for that and say like habits, like movement habits. Uh, yeah, if you impose a limitation, it's, you know, forcing your practitioner or you yourself to come up with other solutions for how to move in whatever that scenario or task is. Yeah. It, yeah. Um, do you have, or are you going to be doing any sort of, uh, online classes or anything that are open to the general public or, or people of the world at any point? Uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe in July. I kind of, I got, well, I got a good groove with my class that I'm teaching right now. And then also a good groove with my own learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm accessing, uh, again, so we're talking about limitations simply because I have less access is like, I'm, things are like a little bit more pointed at my personal practice. So mm -hmm. I'm spending a lot of time nourishing that, which is great. Cause I think that there's a lot that distracts me from that kind of outside of pandemic. You know, there's always working and dance. It's just like a never ending hustle, you know, it's right. like hus hustling to get jobs all the time. Right. So that I kind of don't really have a hustling option because, you know, literally the world isn't, it's not happening, you know, like I'm, I'm really just spending time with myself okay. and investing in my personal practice. So no, nothing on the horizon. Maybe mm -hmm. in July, I'm kind of a workaholic, so I wouldn't be surprised if something arose in July, but. Well, you should, and if you do, <laughs> you have to let me know so that um, I can participate and so that I can put it out there to people to, to jump on and participate. Okay, will do. <laughs> and, and, and what is the, uh, the best way for people to find you? Is it like uh, Instagram or uh, your website or any of these things? 
Oh yeah, I'm on Instagram. Mm -hmm. I think I have like 12 posts or something, mm -hmm. some incredible number like that. But mm -hmm. yeah, I'm on Instagram. So if you can figure out how to spell my last name, you can find me there. I also mm -hmm. have a website, which is a, a little more accessible in the spelling department. It's mm -hmm. Alana Moves, all one word, dot com. Mm -hmm. And I'm pretty diligent about posting uh, all the classes that I'm teaching on that website. And there's also a link to connect with me via email there as well. And then if we were to go on YouTube or anything, would we be able to see any of your, your work as a dancer? Is there anything that we can look up? It's, it wouldn't be the, the kind of the channel that I would recommend just because, you know, dance is a live, oh, it's not exclusively a live art, but definitely most of what I've engaged in has been really for like a live forum. So I, don't, I never really feel like sending people to YouTube because I don't really feel like it's the best representation of what I do, but I do have a YouTube channel mm -hmm. and there is a link to that on my, um, on my website. If you wanted to see some video of me mm -hmm. scuttling around. <laughs> Fair enough. So nobody, everybody go to the channel, but nobody <laughs> don't look at anything on the channel. Just know that it's there. Just yeah. know that it's there. <laughs> just make sure once the world opens up again, you, you make a trip to wherever Alana is performing and, and, and see it live. Yeah, that's for sure the better way. Totally. Well, this was amazing. Um, I'm, I'm super happy that we, we got to connect. The last thing I wanted to, to say, and I think I saw it on, on your Facebook page. I guess you were at um, uh, a, a workshop somewhere and I saw you with the hatchet making a, a sphere out of a block of wood. Yes. And it's funny that you, I saw this photo because I think I saw it today when I, when, I, when I looked up your Facebook page because I saw the video from that event and saw that happening and I have so much time right now and I felt so inspired that I, I, I have a block of wood coming and a hatchet because I really want to uh, tackle this project. Mm -hmm. I was so inspired watching it and I just thought it was so interesting seeing uh, the video or the photo of you on your page hatcheting um, the sphere out of the, the block of wood. Yeah, so you've got a hatchet. You're going to need some kind of a sharpening stone. Don't forget about that as part of your process. <laughs> you oh, okay. will need to sharpen that hatchet. Okay. Yeah, blo block of wood turning oh. into a sphere. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's going to be poetic. I'm excited for you. And it still involves all these principles like, mm -hmm. yeah, relationally. How does your relationship to the wood change? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean that in some kind of like a... It can exist as like some kind of abstract idea, but actually practically as your sphere starts to form, you need to position yourself in relationship to the wood in a different way so that you can keep hacking away at it and it doesn't roll away from you or you don't slice off a fingertip or something, you yeah. know, like, yeah, concretely, you're going to need to shift your, or kind of like re-strategize your physical, what's happening physically in relationship to the to the wood. I'm excited for you. Yeah, you should document it and stuff. Well, it was very funny because I was just like, I've thought about it so much in the last couple of weeks because I've been kind of like piecing together the things that I need to make it happen. And then I looked your, your page up today before we did this talk and I saw your photo there and I was like, oh my gosh, look at that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, such an interesting task. I, I like, I kind of want to talk about it a lot, but then I also don't want to talk about it because it'll just probably be super wonderful for you to discover 
the things in the moment that will happen as you're working through the process of, of literally sculpting this sphere out of the block. Well, we'll schedule a call um, and, and we'll revisit after I do it and uh, I'll do a debrief with you and let you know what I thought. I dig it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for doing this and thank you to everybody who, who came and participated. And I really do look forward to um, when the world kind of settles down, when we get to come in and visit Canada. Like my wife, Alexa, was born in Canada. We have this weird connection between her folks and, uh, and your mom and everything. And that's a whole other story. Um, but uh, I've never been to Montreal. So hopefully we'll, we'll head that direction here at some point. Sounds fantastic. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you, Alana. Have a great night. Thank you. You as well, Kyle. Bye. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Bye.